Creative Babble. Hey guys, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about my new YouTube channel. Yes, Pretend is on YouTube. I'm going to be picking 10 subscribers at random at the end of the month and giving them a free screen printed shirt with my logo on it. These pretend t-shirts are awesome. The link is in the show notes. You're listening to audio from Duke University Chapel. Welcome to the 2017 Hippocratic Oath and Diploma Ceremony. Family and friends gather as they watch their soon-to-be graduates walk down the aisle. By the end of the commencement ceremony, the students wearing their cap and gown will formally become physicians. But before they do, they have to perform the most sacred ritual in their profession. It's called the Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath is one of the oldest covenants in medicine. It establishes medical ethics that still guide doctors today. It was written by the ancient Greeks between the 5th and the 3rd century BC. Today, these students are reading from a modern version of the oath. But one of the most important principles is the line, first, do no harm. Although that exact phrase is not actually in the Hippocratic Oath, it pretty much sums it up. When the ceremony ends, the new doctors are reminded that they're now ready to heal the world. Their new mission is to reduce pain and suffering for their patients. While most of these new doctors leave the ceremony and abide by the Hippocratic Oath, some do not. The oath is technically not a binding document, it's just an understanding between doctors. However, if a doctor violates the oath, they could lose their license and never practice medicine again. So one could argue that once you violate the oath, you're no longer a doctor. You're just a criminal wearing a white coat. Today, we're going to talk about crooked doctors practicing bad medicine. Not incompetent doctors who slip up here and there. No, these doctors are criminals who are accused of the most serious crime of them all. Homicide. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first.
My name is Charlotte Bismuth. I was a Manhattan assistant district attorney for seven years from 2008 to 2015. Charlotte Bismuth worked in the New York City's district attorney's office. Her focus was on crimes for prescription-related drugs. You wrote in your book that neighborhoods are supposed to be safe without drug dealers and doctors, you know, should do no harm. And, and that really struck me because that's not the case. In the Hippocratic Oath, it's not mandatory. It's a tradition. Also, it's nuanced. It's first, do no harm. There are obviously circumstances where doctors are in difficult positions and have to take, make tough calls. But the idea is that it's this, it's this call to do the best that you can. And the opposite of that is greed. And the opposite of that is indifference. And that's what we're, that's what we're seeing today. What we're seeing today are doctors over-prescribing pain medication to people who don't need it. Oxycontin, Percocet, Vicodin. What we're witnessing is the decay of America. People who you'd never picture as an addict are slaves to these pain meds. Our cousins, sisters, brothers, mothers. Someone you know has battled with addictions to opioids. From 1999 to 2016, half a million Americans have died of opioid overdoses. And some of the people responsible are the same ones in society who we're conditioned to trust the most, doctors. I mean, what does a parent tell a kid, hey, when you grow up, you got to become a lawyer or a doctor, right? And why? Because doctors are successful. They make lots of money. So that it, like, it seems like they would be the least greediest people out there. What does it take to be a criminal? If you are selling prescriptions in exchange for cash, are you still a doctor? If you're an executive at a pharmaceutical company who is deliberately mismarketing a drug in order to maximize profits, do you still deserve the, the status and the respect of society? This idea that a medication, when you put it in a pill bottle and you attach it to a prescription is no longer dangerous. And that's just not true. The first episode I ever recorded for this podcast was about the opioid crisis. It was the series that inspired this show. I knew my cousin was a criminal. I just didn't know what got him in trouble. I recorded my conversations with my cousin before he was sent to federal prison for operating a pill mill. A pill mill is a drug house masquerading as a legit pain management clinic. My cousin hired a real doctor to write prescriptions for opioids to patients who were looking for a fix. Here's a clip. Well, the reason why you want to have the clinic is you need somebody to write you the prescription. I went online and I put a few ads on Craigslist looking for a doctor that was willing to do pain management. And I ended up, you know, catching one you know i got a doctor i met with the doctor the doctor was a cool guy man he said yeah man i you know the doctor straight up tells me hey man yeah i know what's going on man i want to make some money too the series is called birth of a con man if you want to check it out i'll have a link in the show notes my cousin who owned the pain clinic eventually went to prison and served time but the doctors writing the scripts never did I can only imagine how many people overdosed and died under their care. People are dying, so why aren't more doctors going to jail? And why aren't they being charged with homicide? I mean, let's face it, if you purposely hand over a lethal dose of painkillers to an addict, isn't that the same as handing someone a loaded gun? 
Now, back to Charlotte Bismuth, back to when she was an assistant district attorney in New York City. So I was in my office late one night. At the time, I was going through a tough divorce. I honestly, you know, preferred to be in the office than at home. My bureau chief called me over to her office and gave me a little tiny post-it note that said, Dr. Stan Lee, Flushing, Queens, and then there was a detective's phone number on it. The doctor's name is Stan Lee. Yeah, like Stan Lee from the Marvel comics, except his last name is spelled L-I instead of L-E-E. And that's as far as that comparison goes. Unlike the creator of Spider-Man, this Stan Lee lived an unassuming life. When Charlotte Bismuth got a tip about Dr. Lee from a detective, on paper, he seemed like any other physician practicing medicine, not some supervillain operating a drug house in a secret lair. And she said, I just got this complaint of a doctor who's prescribing medications to kids who don't need it, but I don't know what it is, and I don't know if it's anything. Can you look into it? If a doctor is prescribing medication, that's what doctors do. How is that a crime? So step one was to figure out whether there was anything else going on. Charlotte and her investigator went out to his office during the week. There was nothing going on. It looked like a legit medical practice, but there had to be more to this. We did a lot of data analysis to look at prescription records. And as we were building the case, I think that there was this constant resistance sort of within myself and my team and my office of, are we the right people to be looking into this? We're not doctors. We're not the medical oversight board. We're prosecutors. I want to back up a little bit and get to know who Dr. Stanley is. Who was he? In many ways, he's still a mystery. I mean, we may have... We may not know much about Dr. Stanley. But what we do know is that he got his medical education in China. He actually had quite an extraordinary path. He had grown up in China during the Cultural Revolution. He actually worked, I think, for five years as a nurse in a psychiatric hospital in China. Eventually, Dr. Stanley moved to America. And you have to understand, just because you're a doctor in China doesn't automatically make you a doctor in the U.S. You have to go through the whole credentialing process again in the U.S. And if you think about the grit and the amount of effort and work that that takes. You've been through medical school, you've done your job, and you have to come to a new country and do it all over again in a language that is not your native language. And that's pretty extraordinary. And he did that. He went to a good medical school. He did a fellowship. He ultimately, at the time that our paths crossed, he was employed full-time as an anesthesiologist in a well-respected teaching hospital in New Jersey. He made several hundred thousand dollars a year working five days a week, bringing patients in and out of consciousness in operating rooms, no complaints in his workplace. But on the weekend, he had this side hustle. So did you find any history of malpractice with him at all when you first started looking into this? None. Dr. Lee's side hustle was in Flushing, Queens, just outside of New York City. Flushing, Queens is one of the largest and fastest growing Chinese population outside of Asia. So why would a respectable doctor need a side gig? Charlotte needed to find out. So the first thing she did was figure out where Dr. Lee was spending his free time. His side hustle was nestled somewhere between an adult daycare center and a dentist office. His office was located in the basement of a residential building. When she walked down the concrete steps, she saw a sign that read pain clinic in both English and standard Chinese. In a crime like this one, 
there's the facade, but then there are the clues, right? So there was the facade of the clinic, the white lab coat, the staff, but he only gave out numbered tickets. There were no appointments. It was a first come first serve situation. He also saw up to 100 patients a day, usually 70, an average of 70, up to 100, sometimes more than 100. So again, that defies reality in terms of actually practicing medicine. His medical records were bare bones. And most crucially, everybody who saw him got the same prescriptions, 120 oxycodone and 90 Xanax, no matter what their conditions. It's almost transactional. It's almost like a storefront. You go pick up your medicine and leave because what was the average time that he spent with some of these patients? If he saw 100 patients a day on the weekend... How long was he actually with these patients? As one patient described it, just long enough to write out the prescription and take the cash. Dr. Lee kept the list of everyone who came to see him. Not exactly medical records, but more of a ledger with cash transactions. Thick sets of handwritten lists. And they were actually the lists of by date of every patient that had come in and how much money they had paid. And when you saw those names, a hundred or more names on a list on one day, and you thought about, you know, he was there from, I think, 8.30 to 6, sometimes 7. He took an hour lunch break. And you sort of do the math in your head of how long it could have been. It's incredible. Dr. Lee had one patient. And in your book, you talk about her situation was that she was experiencing a lot of joint pain, knee pain, elbow, fingers, and she's been addicted to opioids for five years. And her parents sent Dr. Lee a letter. Can you tell us about that? We came across a letter, a handwritten letter, begging Dr. Lee to please stop prescribing. And it was a letter from from Don Tomasi's father who laid out for Dr. Lee. She's a heroin addict. She's taking the pills. She's taking that you prescribed to her. The letter read, Attention, Dr. Stan Lee. This letter is in regards to our daughter and your patient. She's a drug addict who has had a pill and a hard substance problem for over five years. If you haven't noticed, she is not healthy at all and does not eat normally, sleep normally, or breathe and think normally. So it's obvious that if you are a doctor of pain therapy, then you must be able to see the pain our daughter is dealing with. She has been found in our closet with her mouth open, laying in a bad condition. She has also been found lying in the bathroom, toilet, anywhere her little sick body gives out on her. This letter is heartbreaking. She's trading for other drugs, such as crack. We're finding her unconscious on the floor. She doesn't breathe normally. She doesn't eat normally. She doesn't sleep normally. We need your help because we're afraid that she's going to die. And this father had specifically asked Dr. Lee not to prescribe fentanyl again, not to prescribe certain other drugs. And then you see that he did. Her father actually went to see Dr. Lee, but that she spoke to Dr. Lee afterwards and she said, don't listen to my father. I want this medication, so you need to keep giving it to me. And he did. And when Dr. Lee was confronted about the letter from the young girl's father at trial, he had a simple explanation. He said, well, you know, it's just her father. She's an adult. And did she ever recover? Yeah. So she, it's a miracle that she survived as long as she did. She suffered multiple near fatal overdoses. We brought into trial some of the physicians who had treated her in the ICU to describe the condition that she was in. It is a miracle that she survived. I hope that she is safe now. 
This patient ultimately survived, but others weren't so lucky. Many people died under Stanley's care or lack of. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, overdoses involving opioids killed nearly 47,000 people in 2018, and 32% of those deaths involved prescription opioids. The New York City's DA's office wanted to slap Dr. Lee with the highest possible crime, homicide. Charlotte and her team wanted every name of every person who died of an overdose under Dr. Lee's care. First, they had to comb through a list of everyone who died in New York City of an overdose. We started hearing about overdoses. We ordered uh, documents from the medical examiners. We started interviewing family. Then they had to match those people with patients of Dr. Lee. The list was pretty long. Charlotte and her investigators hit the streets of New York, trying to track down every one of these patients. The search took them to all five boroughs of New York. You would hear, oh, I, I heard somebody named Nick died in you know 2011. And so he would start with just a name and a rough date. He would start trying to trace it down. Once they narrowed down the list, the DA's office interviewed family members. Charlotte remembers asking a woman if she remembered when her son passed away. The mother replied, three years, eight months, and two days. The pain felt by these families is real. And that woman's son was just one of the deaths tied to Dr. Lee that we know of. The longer they wait to shut down Dr. Lee's office, the more people will die. But they couldn't rush this. The prosecutor's job is to prove without a doubt that the drugs that Dr. Lee prescribed his patients caused their hearts to stop. We realized pretty quickly that those were not cases that we could prosecute because we had to be able to trace back the cause of the death to Dr. Lee. Dr. Stanley's ledger recorded each cash transaction, but that list still haunts Charlotte today. What was so hurtful about that was to see on, on that list the names of people who had been alive back then and who were now dead. How many people died under his care? I think the full number may not ever be known. We discovered 16 patients who died of an overdose either while they were under his care or within a year of leaving his care. Connecting Dr. Lee to an overdose death wasn't going to be easy. None of us knew where this was leading. Unfortunately, there wasn't a shortage of body bags. The trick was picking the right victims. The DA's office had a burden of proving without a shadow of a doubt that these people's death were directly tied to Dr. Lee. That's hard to prove. We ultimately winnowed down to two cases where these two young men saw Dr. Lee, received prescriptions from him, were dead within 36 hours of having seen him, and they had died of an acute intoxication of oxycodone and Xanax. The cases of Nicholas Rappold and Joseph Haig were cases where when I received the ME report and I saw the date, so just a few days after their last visit to Dr. Lee, I saw the substances that had caused the death, which were the same substances that he'd prescribed. I saw that at the scene, police officers or medical examiner staff had recovered pill bottles. We started gathering testimony from witnesses that had seen Mr. Rappold and Mr. Haig actually ingesting the medication in some cases. And you just get to the point where whatever your reluctance in thinking, are we the right office to be conducting this investigation? Is it appropriate to charge a physician for prescribing medication? The, you have to follow the facts. And to be honest, you know, we, we are not an office that is gung-ho about charging the highest possible charge. We, we knew that we were 
treading into new territory. Never before in New York State had a physician been charged, let alone convicted for manslaughter for the death of his patients. We went through what I can tell you was a very difficult, very long and exhausting internal debate. But how do you prosecute a doctor for homicide involving prescription drugs when it's rarely been done before? Frankly, the red flags just kept piling up. And sadly, the real turning point for us was on Father's Day of 2011. Four people were shot dead inside a pharmacy in Long Island, New York. The pharmacists working that day had volunteered to work Father's Day so that the other pharmacists could spend time with their families. A store clerk who was months away from graduating high school had plans to go to college. The other two victims were customers, a young woman who was planning a wedding and an older gentleman who was just picking up medicine for his wife. They called it the Medford Massacre because the victims never saw the shooter coming. The killer was caught on surveillance camera stealing 10,000 hydrocodone pills. This was obviously a case of a drug addict trying to get his fix. He shot four people in cold blood. But who was the killer? Charlotte had a sick feeling in her stomach that this person could be connected to Dr. Lee. And the way we knew that was that when we went into the office the next day, we thought, well, let's just check to see if any of his patients ever filled prescriptions at that pharmacy. There were two patients who regularly visited that pharmacy in Medford, Long Island. One of the patients didn't match the description on the surveillance video, but the other patient was spot on. That young man was a patient of Dr. Lee's. And we found the name of this young man. We saw that he had a gun license and we sent the information to the Suffolk County Police And two days later, we found out that he'd been arrested. Even though there was no way that Charlotte could have prevented this horrific crime, you could still hear the regret in her voice. And that was devastating because to think that it had happened on our watch, we'd been asking all these questions that we had to ask and they were the right questions. But, you know, we couldn't, it's actually, it's hard for me to talk about because, you know, it's, um, we couldn't wait. She couldn't stop the murders, but there was something that she could do. Charlotte could use the power of the law to stop Dr. Lee. So we, we had to put together a first grand jury presentation to shut down his clinic, get a search warrant, get all the files. But time was running out. The longer Dr. Lee stayed in business, the more people could end up dead. And it was frankly terrifying to wake up every morning and wonder if we were going to find out about another death. Right, because, I mean, he had so many patients out there. It took almost a year for the DA's office to build its case before ever confronting Dr. Lee. Charlotte and her team interviewed 72 witnesses, Dr. Lee's employees, patients, and families of the victims. 11 months after getting that sticky note with a tip from the detective, Dr. Lee was served a search warrant. Authorities busted in and yelled, Police! Everybody stay where you are! Nobody move! police raided his basement clinic at 9 a.m. The waiting room was filled with patients waiting to get their drugs. They moved in towards the closed door, where behind it, Dr. Lee was seeing a patient. They read him his rights and quietly walked him out of the building in handcuffs. It turns out that for seven years, Dr. Lee was running a pain management clinic every Saturday from that basement in Flushing, New York. On a typical weekend, he would see almost 100 patients a day, 
Each patient visit lasted only a few minutes. That's all it took to get a script for oxycodone or Xanax. Reckless manslaughter really captured the conduct here because Dr. Lee was educated. He knew about these medications. He knew about the human body. He knew the risks. He knew that these patients were taking the medication other than he was prescribing them. He knew that there was no medical basis for, his pre for the prescription. And he knew that other patients had overdosed and died. So by the time he prescribed it to them, he was making a deliberate and reckless decision. He was disregarding those risks, and we felt like we did not have a choice. And from your experience, now that you've, you're in this and you've done this, worked on this case for so long, have you seen across the country any other physicians being charged with homicide or, or manslaughter? So I believe there was one in California about a year after our case. There was also a physician in New York State who pled guilty, so he didn't actually go to trial. He pleaded guilty. And when my case went up before the highest court in the state, the New York State Court of Appeals, the judges expressed a lot of concern during the argument and said, well, you know, should, should we really let this conviction stand? Because isn't it going to just open the floodgates to prosecutions of pharmacists or pharmaceutical companies? But the fact is that the, the bar for manslaughter remains high. It's not an easy charge to prove. Do I think it should be pursued when you have somebody like a physician or a pharmaceutical company executive who knew exactly what they were doing, who knew the risk they were taking, who did it for profit, and who acted with complete indifference to human life? Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Lee was charged with two counts of second-degree manslaughter and seven counts of reckless endangerment, as well as 180 counts of illegally selling prescriptions for narcotics. What was Dr. Lee's defense on all this? He ended up testifying for several full days. So he said a couple things. He said that he didn't open the business to make money, that he opened it because he wanted his wife, who had been a doctor in China, to have a, a job and something to do. During the trial, Dr. Lee insisted that he had tried to wean his patients off painkillers and other drugs. He said, I never intended to harm any of my patients. He said that he trusted his patients. That was really one of his taglines during his testimony. I trusted the patient. The patient told me that they were in pain and I trusted them. In the beginning, it maybe it could have worked the first few times he said it, but as he was confronted with more and more evidence about the warnings he'd received, the desperate pleas from parents, the, the condition of the patients when they came into his waiting room. It became a very sinister sentence, frankly. He said that he tried to taper some of the patients down or discharge them, that they were very insistent. And ultimately, he, he tried to defend his prescribing decisions on medical grounds. Luckily, when we had you know, worked up the case, we realized that that was not a territory that was clear enough or where prosecutors should be going. And so we focused on the money. So he was talking about the medicine and we were talking about the money. And what we showed of his greed made everything that he said really seem almost offensive. Describe the economics of this. The economics were the key to everything. Because we quickly understood that the only way to tell this story through to the jury was through the money. And by following the money, Charlotte quickly realized that Dr. Lee's side clinic was a breeding ground for insurance fraud since day one. 
He had elderly patients coming in and he was billing Medicare and insurance companies for multiple services when he'd only done one or, you know, inflating the cost. When Dr. Lee discovered that the opioid business could be very lucrative, it took him to a different level. Not only was Dr. Lee milking insurance companies for services that he did not even perform, he turned his patients into cash cows. He set up a system where you only paid cash, no checks, no credit cards, cash only. He charged different different amounts of cash depending on how many pills you were getting per prescription, per controlled substance, and how many controlled substances you were getting. So it was $150 as a baseline, and then it could go up to $200. Then there were also other thresholds for higher fees. So typically a controlled substance prescription can only be filled once every 30 days. He knew that. If a patient came back before the 30 days, he charged them an extra 50 cash. And he would write that down in their medical records. So have you ever, when you've gone to the doctor, have you ever seen your doctor, first of all, have you ever given cash to your doctor and seen them put it in the pocket of their lab coat? And then has your medical record ever had notations of how much money you gave them in cash and how much you owed, like a little tabulation on the side? He would also charge them extra if he found out that they'd been seeing other doctors and getting controlled substances from other doctors. The worst one for me was that he charged an extra fee to patients who had suicidal ideation. Now, you may wonder, how would he know that? Well, some patients actually told him that they wanted to kill themselves and that that's how they were going to use the medication, and he prescribed them anyway. Charlotte tells me that some of his patients ended up in the emergency room, and when the hospital called Dr. Lee to inform him that his patient was in the hospital, Dr. Lee would take note. Instead of weaning his patients off the drug he was prescribing them, he would charge them another extra 50 bucks the next time they came in. All in all, Charlotte and her team were able to trace half a million dollars in cash. And that's just the cash they were able to account for. God only knows how much more money he made from these people suffering from addiction. I mean, I was just doing the math. If he's charging $150, just baseline, right? Just to go see him. And he's seeing 100 patients a day. That's $15,000 in a day. That's insane. And that's just walking in, not not even all those other extra charges for suicidal thoughts. And my God, that's horrible. And that's on top of a salary that I think for most Americans would be a comfort, right? $300,000 a year. That's a huge achievement. The greed, the greed makes it not enough. The fact is that these medications change your brain chemistry. There is a difference between dependence and addiction where There are people with legitimate and very difficult chronic pain conditions who take the medication and who need to continue taking it in order to feel normal. But there's also a point where it changes your brain chemistry and you may be chasing a feeling that you had when you first started the medication that you will never find again, but you just just keep going to the point where it disrupts your life, it disrupts your relationships, the fear of withdrawal, which is as I have heard, you know, horrific as a feeling is driving you to get more. In your book, you say that in New York, doctors aren't allowed to prescribe controlled substances to addicted people or habitual users. Tell me about that law. You know, it's one of those situations where you have the law in the books, but it doesn't really account for the games and the acts that people play 
The tricky part in our case was that we had all these laws on the books and we had a doctor who was pretending to be a good doctor, who was pretending to follow the law. And we had to be able to prove that he wasn't. Victims who had been patients of Dr. Lee who would see him and who, one, he would never ask the question whether they had ever suffered from substance use disorder. Two, if he ever asked, which was rare, they denied it. A few patients told him that they were taking the drug other than he had prescribed them, but a lot of them lied to him. The difference was that in his case, he knew they were lying. He had ample proof that they were lying. He even monetized their lies because he charged them more, depending not just on how many pills they wanted or how many different controlled substances they wanted, but if they came too early, if they presented a, a risk to him, he would charge them more. Here you have Dr. Lee, who has a side hustle making money. How, from your experience, how, how prominent is this problem? How many crooked doctors could be out there? I hate to disappoint you, but a lot. Um, and in fact, you know, Dr. Lee was hardly the first. Um, when we started investigating his case, we were looking for a roadmap for the prosecution because it was really something that our office hadn't seen yet. And there is a website managed by the DEA that has a list of every doctor charged and investigated across the United States with a controlled substance related crime. And it is a list that is hundreds of doctors long. And that doesn't even include the doctors who are investigated and charged at the state levels. Just type in the word pill mill in Google News and you'll see that this criminal behavior is still going on. Despite state laws, regulations aimed at curbing these rogue pain management clinics, the problem is still far from over. There are still doctors out there who have not gotten the message. They benefit from a positive bias in their favor, right? It's what become a, a lawyer or a doctor, what you said. So when someone is a doctor, you have to work harder to uncover the crime because first you have to dismantle this assumption that what they're doing is the right thing and motivated by the right reasons. And in a way that's the hardest work of all, right? Because convincing other prosecutors in my office or the NYPD or the professional oversight board or a jury that yes, this, this gentleman has a medical license and he has a white lab coat and he has a full-time job as a doctor, but that's not how we want you to see him. That's the toughest part. You used the tool that was at your disposal to help this epidemic. Do you feel like prosecuting doctors is the way to solve this? Or what, what do you feel like is the solution for this? I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I knew. I, I don't pretend to have an answer that big. What I can tell you is that if a, if a physician or a pharmaceutical company executive or a distribution company executive can be tied to individual deaths, I believe it is the duty of prosecutors uh, to pursue that because nobody is above the law. Nobody. Accountability does heal, but it, it won't. It's not a quick fix. When we come back, the jury reaches its verdict in the case against Dr. Stan Lee. Will they hold him responsible for the deaths of two of his patients? Plus, the ending to the story takes a dramatic shift that I didn't even see coming. That's after the break. Describe that feeling, the feeling you had when you received the verdict. Did you, did you think this was a slam dunk? During the week of deliberations, 
that was a tough week. Now, the rule in a New York state courtroom when you're about to hear a verdict on a homicide charge is that you have to have armed court officers. And so slowly, dozens of court officers started coming into the room with very large weaponry and lining the walls. And so that in this almost complete silence of this big cavernous courtroom, that was sort of the first sign that something important was about to happen. I turned around and where the courtroom had been completely empty, it was full. And it was on our side of the aisle, there were all of my team members, some of our expert witnesses who worked not that far away, some of the family members like Erin Kingsley, who, whose father had been a patient of Dr. Lee's, who lost both of her parents to overdoses. And in that moment, I think I felt that no matter what happened, you know, we had gone from a team, just me with that post-it to me and Joe me and Joe and a couple of other people and Peter. And now we had, no matter what happened, we had all of these people who knew what Dr. Lee had done and that would never change. And on his side of the aisle, there were very, very few people, but his wife was there. What was the verdict on the case? The jury found him guilty on both counts of manslaughter, uh, guilty on three counts of reckless endangerment in the first degree, which was a very, very significant charge as well. They, out of 218 counts that the grand jury had voted, they acquitted him on, I believe, nine of them. And where's Dr. Lee now? Dr. Lee is serving 10 to 20 years in a New York State prison. A jury convicted Dr. Stanley on 195 counts, including two counts of manslaughter for the deaths of his two patients, and was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. Dr. Lee was 60 years old when he was locked up. He served six years in prison and probably will spend the rest of his life behind bars. He will be 80-something years old before he can ever get out. Well, that was his sentence. But shortly after my interview with Charlotte Bismuth, I learned some surprising news. It seemed COVID-19 had other plans for Dr. Lee. Dr. Stan Lee died in prison on April 26, 2020. Luckily, Dr. Stan Lee doesn't pose a threat to society anymore, but that doesn't mean that pill mills have gone away. One in five Americans suffer from chronic pain, and the numbers worldwide are even more staggering. Even you might be listening to this right now and are experiencing unbelievable pain. What should you do? Where should you go? Many people turn to pain management clinics, but how do you know if you're going to a pill mill? What, what are the things that you should watch out for? How do you, you know, not put all your faith on the doctor to, to, to manage your pain, but what are the signs that you should maybe hold back on medication? The response to pain is not to numb it. It's not to kill the pain, it's to listen to the pain, to follow it, to investigate it. And I, I think a lot about the parallels between a criminal investigation and a medical investigation of somebody's condition. You want a doctor who is relentless in trying to understand what caused your pain, what can help, to think about combination therapies, but a doctor who listens to pain and cares about it. Today, Charlotte no longer works for the DA's office. She spent the last few years looking back and trying to make sense out of this case that consumed her life. I wrote a book, Bad Medicine, which is coming out in January. And now I'm really working as an activist with survivors of the opioid epidemic, parents who have lost children to the epidemic, and we're trying to draw attention to 
some of the court proceedings that are going on right now relating to Purdue Pharmaceuticals and, and other issues. That's, that's excellent. Why, out of all the cases that you've ever worked on, why write a book on this one? So after I left the office in 2015, I was drained. This case had been my life for five years. When I left, I didn't intend to write this book. In fact, I wrote a very bad novel instead. But as I was reading the news month after month, seeing the overdose numbers go up, reading about the pharmaceutical companies, I all of a sudden began seeing the story in a completely different way. I had been so deep in the weeds of this one doctor in one city. And even though he had a death toll associated with him, it was still just one person. But I realized that it was the same narrative that we were seeing on a national scale with the pharmaceutical companies. The same defenses that he had raised were the ones that we were hearing the pharmaceutical companies raised. The same conduct that almost got away with not being considered a crime was happening on a national scale, but it wasn't quite being perceived as a crime yet. So it occurred to me that by telling this story, which was like the opioid epidemic in a microcosm, I could talk about greed, I could talk about pain, I could talk about justice, and I could sort of shed light on something that was happening around the country and not just in Flushing, New York. Charlotte Bismuth's book is titled Bad Medicine. I'll have a link in the show notes. Next time on Pretend, we're going to take another look at the opioid epidemic, but this time from a pharmacist's perspective. But not just any pharmacist. This guy is a vigilante who helped bring down his son's killer, a pill mill, and one of the largest pharmaceutical companies on earth. That's next time on Pretend. All right, that's this week's show. Make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel for Pretend. The link is in the show notes. I have more of my conversation with Leo Rossi and Joe Pistone, a.k.a. The Real Donnie Brasco. And I'm going to have an extended cut of this week's episode with Charlotte Bismuth. Also, if you want to support the show, go to pretendradio.org and click the donate button. I have tons of bonus material up there. And this week, I'm going to talk about my favorite movie ever, the best con artist movie, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. So go to pretendradio.org and click the donate button. We're going to talk about my favorite con artist movie of all time, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, with Jackie, the host of Jackie Watches Stuff. You don't want to miss that. Go to pretendradio.org and click the donate button. Also, I'd love to hear from you guys, so follow me on Twitter at pretendpod or Instagram, pretendpod, or Facebook, or wherever, pigeons. (laughs) I don't care. I would love to hear from you. Tell me how I'm doing. Tell me what you like about the show. Tell me what you don't like about the show. I'm here to serve you. (laughs) All right, guys, take it easy. Creative Babble.